Thanks, Davin. Listen, guys, God bless you. I hope you've been, I had a tremendous time so far as we get ready uh, for the message. Uh, I want to just tell you about something super exciting next weekend. Check it out. Folk across the country here in America will be watching the Super Bowl. And so we've taken advantage of that. It is our team uh, spirit Sunday. Can somebody shout team spirit? So we're encouraging you on next weekend, wherever you are, whatever is your favorite team. It may be a professional sport team like basketball, football, baseball, hockey, etc. Maybe your college uh, or university team, etc. We want you to wear uh, either a hat like Golden State Warriors, any Warriors in the house, my favorite team right here, up in here, all right? Or uh, it may be your college team, as I mentioned, and my college team is uh, Gramlin State University. Any Tigers listening, come on, make some noise. Now, of course, my current favorite team right now is NBCC. And so uh, uh, what I want to reinforce is that next weekend, as we're celebrating Team Spirit Day, after the message, with you wearing your shirt, wearing your hat, by the way, make sure you take a picture and tag us with your hat or your shirt on and tag us at NBCC Bay Area. But the message is going to be a shorter message. It's going to give you an opportunity uh, to, to uh, connect with us through our electronic connection card and indicate that you want to be a part of our NBCC online Dream Team, we got a place for you. So we want you to connect. Now, if you're watching this and you're going to actually come to one of our local campuses uh, in the Bay Area, after the message, you'll have an opportunity. Please go to our Team Spirit table, and you'll have a chance to join our team right there. Okay? One final thing. I've got a special guest for us today. Uh, her name is Pastor Tina Tang Henson, and she's going to bring an incredible message for us. Uh, I first met Pastor Tina uh, back in Boston. She's a graduate of Harvard uh, University. She was a chaplain there uh, on the campus, and she showed up in one of my seminary courses that I had an opportunity to teach. A number of years later, she was, I re-encountered her again here in the Bay Area. She uh, came on to our NBCC team and served for uh, a little over a year, helping to build our small group uh, and discipleship community. She's just fantastic. Right now, she's using all of those incredible gifts that she has to strengthen smaller churches across the Bay Area. She's preaching and doing worship art, uh, uh, ministering uh, in terms of worship ministry, and a whole variety of other things that she's doing to strengthen the local church. So get ready. Uh, she is married to John, who is just absolutely amazing. She has a five-month-old daughter, Teresa, seven-year-old son, Peter, and a nine-year-old daughter named Beatrice. So let's pray. God, we ask that you pour out your spirit and bless the teaching today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all get ready and welcome Pastor Tina. Take it away, Pastor Tina. Welcome, everyone. It's great to be with you, NBCC. I just want to thank Pastor Herman and Pastor Tilden for the chance to be with you and bring the word of God. Um, I loved working for you several years ago, and on behalf of my husband, John, and our three kids, um, Beatrice is nine now, she just got braces, Peter's seven, and Teresa's five. Um, we just are just delighted to worship with you today. Um, it's a bit of an unusual topic, I recognize, for a comeback sermon, but um, honestly, I feel like the topic, um, God gave it to me 
for you um, to kind of help people work through something that's a little bit hard to work through by yourself. This morning's message is entitled, Shame Undone in Psalm 51. And shame is one of those things that we don't like dealing with because it's sort of like, as someone said earlier, like it's like personally invasive and it's also kind of like hard. Um, sometimes we feel shame when we have like a job loss or a layoff. And we know in the Bay Area there's been a lot of layoffs recently. Sometimes couples experience shame when they can't get pregnant, but that's not really their fault, right? It just happens. But that's part of what's going on when I talk about shame today. There's a pretext usually of judgment from other people who see us and maybe have something they, they feel about our lives, and then we internalize that and then don't feel good about ourselves. In the biblical kind of context, it was an honor-shame culture. Honor and shame were really important. And you might think you don't know what an honor-shame context might look like, but if you just think about like Japanese samurai culture, I'm not Japanese, but think about like seppuku. It was like one of those things where people would literally like cut themselves open rather than shame the people that they had just um, worked for. And there was a sense of rather than bring shame on themselves, um, they'd rather just die. Now, I know that's a heavy. <laughs> the good news, and there is good news today, is that, and I hope you hang with me through all of Psalm 51, is that God, through Jesus, through Jesus' ancestor, King David, who did a number of things in his life that he was very ashamed about, gives us an amazing kind of heartfelt prayer where he learns to name the shame, that kind of dirty, icky, self-focused feeling. And then he learns to tame the shame by clarifying the cause and sifting through, is there actually sin or guilt involved? If so, we can deal with that. And then David shows us how to go to God with a contrite heart for cleansing and help. And then finally, he learns to proclaim God's restoration of his life so that he can begin again, renewed, restored, and redeemed. So as we start on a kind of complicated thing, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are sensitive and that you, like a surgeon, would gently carve out anything within us that feels unnecessarily bad about ourselves and replace our, that part with a new heart that feels clean and whole, not lacking anything. So God, bless this community, bless us, and, and teach us in this time. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So this is how David begins Psalm 51. He begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he continues this theme in verse 7 and 8. Cleanse me with hyssop, which is a plant used for ceremonial cleansing, and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, I was trying to think about a story to tell you about cleansing and blotting out. And I have like so many stories I, I thought to tell. Um, 
But the main one, and I know you might cringe because no one likes to talk about this, is that of bedwetting. Now, I don't want to talk about this in great detail, but a couple of years ago, uh, around Christmas time, we were at my in-laws in the Midwest, and some of my children, I think because of the time change, new environment, had like a bedwetting thing for like several nights in a row. And then one night there was also like a nosebleed because it was really deep, like dry in the attic. And in the middle of the night, one of my children would come up to me and be like, Mom, I had an accident. <laughs> and so I'd have to get up and like try to like figure out what to do. And so usually I just let the kid like sleep in my bed. And I would go to the mattress and I would pull out the, um, the washcloths from the linen closet. And somehow my in-laws, they don't use uh, fabric softener or dryer sheets. And so these washcloths were like super rough and they would chafe my hands and I would like try to like blot out this stain. And I would just like put all my pressure and just like lean on the blot, like on the stain. So it would just come out. And I just remember thinking, gosh, this is just like this passage. Like, how do I get this out? And it's, so fu it's funny because bedwetting is one of those things that we feel a lot of like, oh, you got to like outgrow that at like a certain age. But doctors say it actually takes a long time. But the funny thing about bedwetting is like, you know, kids wet the bed. You know, people make mistakes. Like these aren't like, these aren't sins. Like it just happens. It's developmental. It's a part of life. So whatever shame they might feel actually comes from others around them making them feel bad for something that they've done. But it's not really their fault. So as I start off in this topic, I want to just first acknowledge sometimes how hard it is to even know what we're feeling and what the root cause might be. Sometimes you might feel bad about yourself because something happened, someone said something to you like off the cuff, a passing comment, or you know, you run a red light and you get caught and you feel bad. Sometimes we just have a hard time knowing, like, is it shame or is it guilt? And what's the difference anyway? I want to just point out this book by Brene Brown um, called Atlas of the Heart maps meaningful connection and human experience around different emotions. And she does a great job distinguishing between guilt and shame. So guilt focuses on behavior. Like, I did something bad. Boo. But shame focuses on the self. It says, I did something bad and I am bad. Like there's something wrong with me. And it feels terrible. So shame is that intensely painful feeling where you believe that you are flawed and that therefore you're unworthy of belonging or connection. And, and when you feel shame, you feel like you should just like go away or hide. Like you don't want to talk about it. And you don't want anyone to know. So guilt is interesting because guilt you can deal with. It can drive positive change in behavior. Like you can be like, I did something wrong. I'm sorry. It's done. Like I won't do it again, you know. But shame is harder because it kind of like weasels its way into your heart and like lodges there. And shame does not drive positive change because you get self-focused. And you get in what my husband affectionately calls a doom loop. And you're just spiraling downward and downward. Now, what I want to say is that what happens in this psalm is a little bit different because David tells us at the very top of the psalm in the superscription, which is like the teeny tiny letters right under the Psalm 51 heading, he says he wrote it when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So 
if shame is something that happens that you internalize um, and there's guilt, in this passage, there's a lot of guilt involved. And so whatever shame David is dealing with actually has like a strong basis in like having done extremely wrong. It's a hard passage because when you find the context, which is 2 Samuel um, 11 and 12, um, David has like royally screwed up. So he's the king of Israel and like he has royally screwed up. He, he sees a woman, he decides he wants to get with her. Um, she gets pregnant. And so to try to cover up, he calls back from battle one of his soldiers named Uriah. And he calls Uriah back and he tries to convince Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife to cover up what he did. Uriah is a good guy and he doesn't go. So David tries again to convince Uriah. He tries to get him drunk and sends him home. Uriah refuses to go. And so finally, David desperately writes a letter sends it with Uriah to the battle lines to put him at the front of the battle lines so that he'll get struck down and die. And Uriah dies. I was reading 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and there's this funny line between the two chapters where it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David to confront him. And I'm like, the thing that David did wrong? Like, he did, like, a lot of things wrong. So David writes in this psalm, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Poor guy is grappling with, like, his deepest, darkest, hardest deeds. And he knows it's just wrong. So what he does, though, that we can learn from is that when your conscience is raging and you can't even escape your memory, your recollection of what you've done, he goes to God. He goes to God and says this, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David just confesses and acknowledges, he's like, I know I've committed major sin. This isn't like I got stuck at a red light or like I ran a red light, I got caught going to traffic school. It's not I was texting while driving, you know. It's I killed a man and took his wife. But he also recognizes, God, I've sinned against you. In that era, you know, it was in some ways a context where kings were permitted and even it was understood that sometimes they would have multiple wives and David already had two but he found a third but it was also this he understood that what he had done was morally wrong against the code that God had instituted God wasn't relativistic and he was trying to say to him like he knew it was wrong because David knew his bible and he knew the book of Leviticus the book of Leviticus basically has all of these elaborate um, things that people can do to make it right. Um, earlier I was talking to someone and he actually, his family has a cattle ranch in Mexico and um, in that biblical time they would take cattle and, and slaughter them to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifices were made often for things that happened. But the interesting thing was those sacrifices were made for unintentional sin. Like they're very clear. When you make a mistake and things happen, this is what you do to make it right. But then Leviticus is so clear. When it's things like adultery, 
The punishment is death. So knowing this, David cries out to God. He's like, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Like, I know there's no, there's not enough cattle to make this right. You won't be pleased with a sacrifice. I can't just kill a cow and say, I'm sorry. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What's stunning is it is David is so honest about what he's done and he goes to God and bears his soul. Let me just change gears a bit and just lighten the mood again. Um, when I was with my in-laws, um, I love my in-laws. Um, some, I love that their culture, they're from the Midwest and they just, um, it's, it's just a, a, a different culture than where I grew up. I grew up in New York. Um, my family is Chinese by background and um, my, I was raised in Long Island, New York, and it's kind of a context where um, I often felt like a bit out of place. You know, I was Chinese in a mostly predominantly white area, um, went to Boston, came here to California. But when I'm with my in-laws, I just appreciate their culture. It's different from my own. One thing that they do is um, they have really great food and they're hospitable. But one thing I really appreciate is that when, when people do something that's wrong, they don't make them feel worse for it. And so when my kids were having, you know, their bedwetting incidents, like they didn't make us feel bad that they were having accidents or that maybe we hadn't parented them well. They were just like, you know what, kids, they're just kids. This is what kids do. Don't make them feel worse, you know. And my father-in-law, Ed, has this rule of thumb. He's like, when someone, when you do something wrong, he says, number one, Feel sorry in your heart. Number two, try to make it right. And number three, try not to do it again. And I love it because I feel like my father-in-law, Ed, gets what King David gets, which is that actually how you feel in your heart about something that you've done and what you do with that feeling matters a lot. And what David does is when he feels sorry in his heart, he brings it to God. And he says, verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. He says, he names it. He's like, deliver me from what I've done, from my blood. I shed blood, I'm guilty. But God of my salvation, please save me, rescue me again. Then he goes on to say, like, surely I was sinful at birth, like sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So on the one hand, David is saying, like, I know that we're, like, all like this. Like, he's like, I'm not the only one. Like, and he's like, I might have been this way because my mom, like, made me this way, you know. And I think he gets that universality of the human condition. Like, we've all made terrible mistakes in life. It's not, we're not the only ones, you know. There's no one person has to get singled out for doing something wrong, like, this is just what happens. We make mistakes. Uh, my husband and I, we were talking about this sermon, and he was like, it's like this Asian shame, perfectionism, doom loop that sometimes you get in, you know? And he was talking about how sometimes in my culture, we're trying so hard to bring, like, honor to the family that when we don't bring honor to the family, we, like, spiral downward. And he's like, Anglos, Caucasians, he's like, we have this guilt-pride doom loop, and, like, the guilt and the pride, like, kind of, there's this doom loop there, and what needs to happen, though, is instead of, like, spiraling downward in this, like, unending place of, like, despair, 
is to actually realize that part of what God wants to do is refashion and recreate us and restore us and give us a new hope. There's this line in 2 Corinthians 3 where it says, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So instead of doom loops where you're spiraling, ask for glory spirals. That's what the passage is saying. It, as we wrestle with our, sh- our shame, our sin, our guilt, instead of going down a doom loop of feeling like despair, we need to go to God, confess, and let him carry us with him from a place of shame to a place of glory and hope. It's interesting. Brene Brown talks about how um, shame is this birthplace of perfectionism, where it's like we're so concerned with what people think about us, their perception, which we know is impossible to control, that we become perfectionistic and we're always trying to make things right. And then we're always trying to push ourselves because we're so scared of what people think about us. Whereas a healthier place of life is to be thinking, like, how can I improve? I'm going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. How can I keep growing? How can I have a growth mindset? How can I just keep on being changed over time? Because shame is a social emotion that we feel between us and others, shame is healed in the context of relationship. Shame is healed when people show us empathy, when you're feeling god-awful about your life for whatever reason, and someone comes alongside you, a friend, a mentor, a teacher, a pastor, a counselor, to just say, hey, I've been there before. I went through something very similar. You're not alone. I get it. Here, let's talk about it. They help undo the shame spiral, the doom loop. They set us on a track. There's a woman named Kristen Neff who talks about um, the importance of self-compassion. And she says that self-kindness, being gentle with yourself, is what we need to do instead of like self-flagellate, you know, or ignore our pain. She talks about common humanity. We all experience shame in different ways. But the thing to do is to be mindful of our thought life and not get stuck in those spirals. Just observe what you're doing and feeling and move out from there. Sometimes, like kids though, when you've wet the bed again, or you have a nosebleed, and there's just a lot to blot up, sometimes you gotta do what my kids do and just ask for help. Because my kids, like, they're too little to strip the sheets, you know, or find the 50% vinegar water spray thing and spray it on, or go to the laundry machine and like stick in the laundry, you know, pour on the detergent to the right amount, flip the dial, close the lid. You know, they don't know how to, they, all they know how to do is ask for help. And so that's exactly what David does as he's processing committing adultery, causing a guy to die. He says this so earnestly, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I love that David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Take out the part of me that cannot forget what I've done. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. He knows at the core it's spiritual. He needs renewal. He wants to be right again. And then he says, you know, it's almost like he gets that the shame makes him want to hide. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Don't, and then he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Like, stay close to me, God. I need you now. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. See, I can preach the sermon because I, like you, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace and becoming a saint over the course of my life. But I know what it's like to make big mistakes and then not know what to do about it. But I've learned, even through preparing the sermon for you, the thing to do is not to internalize the pain and say, oh, this must just be me. No, it's to say, oh my gosh, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Renew me. So what we need to do is to go to God and ask him for help, just like we would to our, our parents if we were a kid with the bedwetting issue or if we had a bloody nose. To go say, I need help getting cleaned up. Will you clean me up? Will you help me? There's a story in scripture that I love. Um, it's about a, a follower of Jesus named Peter. And Peter is someone who, um, he was kind of brash. Sometimes he was a little arrogant, but he, there's no doubt he was a leader. And towards the end of Jesus' life, the night before Jesus was betrayed, Peter was standing by a fire and soldiers were questioning him and servant girls were there and they were just like, hey, do you know that guy, Jesus? Like, and Peter just looked at them and said, no. And then the servant girl looked at him and said, oh, I recognize you. I think you're one of his followers, weren't you? And he just said, no. No, I, I don't know the man. And then the third person asked him again, Peter, weren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And he just says, no. And then right at that point, a rooster crows three times. And Peter, in a flash of insight, remembers that Jesus had told him, actually, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And I think Peter had no idea he would actually do that. And I think he might, he might have fallen into a trap of despair and shame and that doom loop just like Judas who betrayed Christ and killed himself. But Jesus, knowing Peter, after he was crucified, after he died and was buried, when he rose again, Jesus sought Peter out. He found him on a beach, made him breakfast, and in front of all of the disciples, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And then he does it again. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. And Jesus said, well, tend my sheep. And the third time he says to him, Simon, Peter, do you love me? 
And then Peter, a little hurt, goes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I've already told you three times, you know. You know all this. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says to him again, well, feed my sheep. And it's so striking that to the same person who denied him three times, Jesus would reinstate him and give him the chance to articulate again, declare aloud, yes, I love you. I will follow you. And to then be given the responsibility to do the job again. You've not been disqualified, Peter. No, Jesus is saying, no, you, I'm calling you again in front of everyone else who knows you betrayed me, you know, denied me. Go, feed my lambs, take care of my church, take care of my people, feed them, nourish them, care for them. Go do it again. Jesus to us, who might otherwise wallow in shame and guilt and sadness and despair, he wants to say to you today, go, get up, begin again. Begin again, start anew, start fresh. If you fall, get up. When you sin, repent. When you stumble, stand up and go. Go, Peter, continue forth. I have not disqualified you. Yes, you might have been sinful from the moment your mother conceived you, but don't let that stop you. Let me create in you a clean heart. Friends, the gospel tells the truth about us. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. Yes, we are utterly sinful. And left to our own devices, our New Year's resolutions don't make it to February. And yet, God is so committed to us that he would gladly give his son to die to rescue us and save us from now until eternity. We don't deserve that kind of grace. We don't deserve anything. But we can cry out to a God to say, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right heart within me. That is what we are called to do. To come to a God just as we are and say, here I am forgive me. Thank you for saving me. Church is a funny place. You know, we come here, maybe those of us who are here, you know, churches are not perfect because we are not, people are not perfect. (coughs) Whether consciously or unconsciously, we gather here to hear this reminder that God still loves us. He loves us anyway. And maybe we just need to hear that again and again and again. What I love about the end of this psalm, let me just drink a sip of water real quick. After the heaviness of David dealing with his shame and his guilt, after he's learned to go to God with a contrite heart, after he's learned to ask for renewal and restoration and redemption, at the end of the psalm, He says this, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners, other sinners will return to you. Then he says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then will you delight in right sacrifices, 
in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, at the other, on the other side of guilt and shame, after you've gone through confession and repentance and you experience renewal, then there can be rejoicing. Then there can be singing and teaching others what you've learned. Then there can be the ability to sing aloud, not of your own righteousness, but of his righteousness. That is the outcome. That is the hope. At the end of the psalm, there is this collective communal restoration because one individual has repented fully. And what we see is there's right sacrifices again, burnt offerings of bulls and cattle. There's a restoration of the entire system because there's a contrite heart that offered it up to God in humble confession. As we close up, I want to give us some time for you to apply this in your life. In this time of silence, I just want to ask you, what do you need to do in this moment? Do you need to name the shame that you feel for whatever reason, that maybe you've internalized something that has happened to you, you've done, and it's, it's lodged in your heart? Is there something that, that can help you tame the shame to clarify the cause and sift out whether there's actual sin you can confess and repent of or it's just kind of other people's views heaped on yourself? Do you need to go to God with a contrite heart and just claim God's help right now? Like a kid going to his parent to ask for help cleaning up a big mess. Do you just need to go to God and say, help me? Or maybe you've experienced this. You've done these tough things and you're at the point where you can proclaim God's restoration to begin again. And you can tell others about the renewal, the restoration, the redemption you've experienced. I pray that we all could be a community of empathy where people can feel drawn in and safe to be as they are and to be loved into a better place. In a community like this, Jesus can undo our shame and set us free. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for being with us. I ask that you empower this community to really live this out, that they would be people of courage and vulnerability, wisdom and humility. With your power, would they do the hard things of coming to you and letting you peer into their heart and renew it fully. God, as we grow and mature in our knowledge of you, would you soothe the pains in our past and bring forth new light and new glory? Would the world know you, God? Would they know you as we love you and experience your love and care? God, you are so good and your love endures. And we just cry out for that over and over and over again. Help us, God. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your forgiveness and care. And restore us, God, um, in every way. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Wow. 
I told you guys, you were in for an incredibly powerful and remarkably insightful message. Thank you, thank you, Pastor Tino. Breaking the power of shame in our lives, recognizing that we can expose ourselves fully to Jesus Christ in confession, and then continue to grow beyond yesterday's mistakes and mess-ups. Powerful. All right, let's act on what we've just heard. Would you simply scan the QR code right here on the screen? It's going to take you to Next Steps with Jesus. And the very first uh, option you have there, opportunity you have, is to say yes to Jesus. Yeah, to break the power of shame in our lives is to accept uh, the incredible work that Jesus has done through his death and resurrection to set us free and to give us a space of grace to keep growing and improving and developing with him as the head of our lives. This is the moment for somebody to say, I want Jesus to be Lord and Savior. By that mean, we mean Redeemer and the ultimate authority in my life leading me forward in my future. So you can simply check the box that says, I want to be a Jesus follower. Or you may be ready to recommit yourself and return to a church family. We'd love to be your church family wherever you live across the country or across the world. And if you want us to personally follow up with you, then by all means, check in the box there that indicates you want us to reach out to you. Wherever you are in the world, we'll reach out to you. Okay? Uh, make sure that you're back here next weekend. Uh, I'm going to be back here with a special message for Team Spirit. You do not want to miss it. 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific time. We've got some people waiting to engage with you right now in our social, uh, virtual social hall. So register in the next few seconds. Pop in. Let us get a chance to connect with you, even pray with you. God bless you.